Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. You're listening to Think Sustainability, a show where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. And today, we're going to start the show in Central Africa. In far west Chad, on the northeast border of Nigeria, lies Lake Chad. The lake, now a major source of income and export for bordering states, was once known as Lake Mega Chad and estimated to have spanned an area of more than 350,000 square kilometres. Today, the lake provides water to over 68 million people in both Chad and Nigeria, and the surrounding states of Cameroon and Niger. And Dunladi was one of these people. Yeah, I really have a personal connection with Lake Chad. This is Dunladi Yanana. Dunladi is a research teaching assistant at the University of Carrington in Nigeria, and we're talking over Skype, and sometimes the audio drops out, so it might not sound perfect. Dunladi grew up in Maiduguri, a city in the northeastern part of Nigeria. He lived with his four siblings, two brothers and sisters, and his parents. His dad is a fisherman who would travel to Lake Chad to fish and bring them back to sell. And during his dad's time as a fisherman, Dunladi got to visit the lake three times. The first time I went to Lake Chad, I go fishing. But the second time was 10 years ago, when Dunladi was 18. And he remembers the lake had undergone some massive changes. When I went back the second time, we've gone fishing on several occasions. Dunladi and his father would travel both by boat and foot through the lake in search for areas abundant with fish. But on his second trip to the lake, fish numbers were low, much lower than the time he went before. I discovered this time around, instead of just traveling 30 kilometers in the water, we traveled over 12 hours. We traveled over 12 hours. 12 hours looking for fish. How were you getting there? Were you walking? How, how did you get for 12 hours into the lake? <laughs> <laughs> That's a long way. Yeah, we used a boat. Right. So you were walking then? Yes, we were in a water boat. Oh my god. Were you tired? Absolutely, I was. <laughs> <laughs> Although Dunladi can laugh about his experiences now, the treacherous 12-hour-long hike to find fish is a journey only becoming more frequent for his fisherman father. And that's because Lake Chad is shrinking. And it's shrinking at an exponential rate. But within the last 50 years, between the 1960s and the early 2000s, over 90% of the lake has shrinked. Between 1960 and the early 90s, there was a significant increase in the number of people who were dependent on the lake in some way. That's living around it, their employment being reliant on it, or even just getting their water from it. This number of people more than doubled, with the amount of water being abstracted for irrigation, more than quadrupling at the same time. The lake has also shrunk from what was once a 350,000 square kilometre and 160 metre deep extended body of water to 1,500 square kilometres and being 3 metres deep on average. Comparing it to what it was before, it's now a puddle 
the effects this degradation to Lake Chad has had on the people of Central Africa has been devastating. Experts have linked this dwindling resource in the Lake Chad to foster the spread of insecurity within the region. Because of high level of unemployment, people are out of job, the terrorist ideology is becoming interesting for the young people. If you didn't catch that, Dunlady said because there are so few employment opportunities for young people, some turn to terrorist ideology. So there's really, really a serious issue at stake. And for Dunlady's father and family, their future remains uncertain. Oh, my dad now is back to Nigeria and doing some sort of agricultural-related stuff in Nigeria. But we still have some part of the family that have no other option. They still have to be struggling and see how they could get livelihood from the lake. So they just have to kind of figure out what to do now, seeing as it has shrunk. Like, they just have to figure something out. Yes, they just have to figure something out. We're going to come back to Dunlady a little later on, but first, I want to spread the net even further. Today, I want to take a look at how the degradation of natural resources by humans can cause environmental and economic instability. Now, Lake Chad is an example of a water resource that's a necessity for surrounding communities and countries in Central Africa. But to bring things back to an Australian context, I want to talk about land degradation, otherwise known as desertification. Okay, desertification is quite simply the degradation of dry land environments, so semi-arid and arid environments. In fact, in Australia, we probably better know the process simply as land degradation. This is Lee Martin from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. And Lee says the number one thing to know about desertification is that it doesn't mean what the name might imply, that an area of land turns into a desert. I mean, deserts are not an inherently bad thing. Deserts are, as you say, really often very diverse, thriving environments and spectacular places to visit if you're lucky enough to to visit them. But instead, desertification is when dry land environments, which are already characterised by how little water they have, are degraded even further. What happens is that these areas become less productive, both biologically and ecologically, over a period of time. Which makes sense. If we're extracting more from the land than it's capable of providing, obviously its productivity is going to decrease over time. Nearly 40% of the world's surface is covered in dry land environments. And this might surprise you if you live along the coast or in a more urbanised area. But in fact, one third of the world's population live in dry land areas. And even though these areas are water scarce as it is, to live, people will still practice agriculture, drawing on nature for food, water and shelter. But Lee says one of the main reasons these dry lands become even more degraded isn't necessarily because of the agriculture itself, but when it's practised improperly. And Australia is an interesting example of that. One of the things that we're not terribly good at in this country is taking the long view. Parts of the Murray-Darling Basin are showing 
evidence of land degradation. Um, part of that is, again, we've over-exploited the environments and over-extraction of water from uh, our inland rivers and also groundwater supplies. But Lee says it's also due to the animals we use to graze the land that shouldn't be grazing. We've introduced into the Australian environment extra grazing pressure above and beyond that that was uh, provided by native herbivores. So introducing sheep, introducing cattle, introducing goats, um, all they add to the grazing pressure. And also remember, we're talking about hard-hoofed animals, which we don't have any native animals with hard hooves in Australia. What, is, what are the implications of hard hoofs? Um, quite simply, um, our, as I said, our soils are very thin and our soils are supported by, particularly in inland areas, by what we call biocrust. So thin layers of moss, algae, hard hooves can break those crusts very quickly and they can actually increase the rate of erosion. And this is where we get to a crucial part of land degradation, soil. 95% of everything we have just come from soil. This is Miriam S. Fenbod from the School of Natural Sciences at Griffith University. Miriam says soil determines everything we do, from agriculture and growing crops to kids playing sports on the school oval. Kids, we go to kindergarten, they play soccer, rugby. How much that soil is important? Because if we don't have a soil, good soil there, at once one rain come up, is a slippery, our kids will collapse, fall down, and we don't have a good, even good material of for the clothes, for everything, for food. This affects everything. I can say that when we have healthy soil, definitely we have healthy life. Because I'm so confident to say that, to be honest, all these studies relating to the environment, ecology, like mining animals, plants, forests, horticulture, marine, river, water, wetlands, there are 100% dependent to the soil. 95% of the food that we consume, sell, export is only possible because it's grown in healthy soil. In destructive agriculture, hard-hoofed animals strip the land of topsoil, which is the outermost layer of soil where all the crucial organic and biological activity will occur, meaning a healthy topsoil is what allows plants, crops and agriculture to thrive. And without it, things die. Many people might remember that extraordinary morning we had in 2009 when Sydney woke up to see, almost like the end of the world, the sky clouded with a a red mist. The mist that Lee is referring to is what is now called the 2009 Australian dust storm, where thousands of tonnes of dirt and soil were swept across New South Wales and Queensland from inland Australia. The intense red-orange colour cloud, as well as a drop in temperatures, freaked people out. Many really did think it was the end of the world, or even more, an alien invasion from Mars. That was quite simply topsoil from inland Australia that had been stripped away by wind erosion. If there were ever a clearer sign that damaging our topsoil could bring about an inevitable end, I'm yet to see one. But if we're going to look at solutions to desertification, we could come at it from a number of ways. To Lee, one answer is sustainable agriculture, which could even help reverse the effects of desertification. 
adopting permacultural practices, embracing the natural processes of the land rather than draining them, and two, protecting native vegetation, which Lee sees as key. They are the naturally occurring plants and life forms that can help the land carry on its natural processes. But he also has hesitations when it does come to protecting native species, as the motivation of lawmakers isn't so much to protect the land, but to clear it as a way to deal with other issues like rapid urbanisation and population growth. And legislation in Queensland and New South Wales that was designed to prevent land clearing and protect vegetation has actually been significantly weakened. And the example we saw in Queensland is that when that happened, the rates of land clearing increased massively. And that could happen also in New South Wales, as we've seen late last year, changes to the laws protecting native vegetation and very, very similar in in the way they are constructed to those laws in Queensland that led to increased clearing. What exactly is land clearing? Land clearing is simply removal of native vegetation. So removal of trees, removal of shrubs, uh, can also be removal of grasslands. And, and essentially it's the process of turning land over to cultivation and the intensification of industrial development, residential development, mining, that sort of thing. Miriam shares the same view as Lee, but she's more concerned about education. As a researcher of soil and water remediation, Miriam has noticed that university degrees and programs that focus on the importance of soils are decreasing, which has her really worried. I myself get my undergraduate degree 15 years ago. I think I'm the last generation of the students got the degree in soil science. But now, unfortunately, soil science turns up just as a course, even not as a as more sad, it's not as a compulsory course, as an elective course. Then how the, these students and these people as our future generation can to be honest, care about this finite and limited uh, priceless source. Why do you think soil, uh, well, I guess courses and subjects on soil aren't a priority anymore? Uh, To be honest, I don't know, to be honest. You know, I believe the best thing that can help us, maybe we can remove politics out of our education. I always tell the people around the colleagues at university, we have to raise this issue. We have to tell our kids for the future how much soil is important. This is a sad at the moment happening at university. But I hope it's getting improved. I always try to be positive. When we come back, you'll hear what Dunlady thinks can help remediate Lake Chad before it's too late. I was looking at options. If there are tanks, the rainwater could be harvested to support for water consumption, but rainwater harvesting is completely not practiced. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. Why do you call organic waste wasted gold? 
You know, actually, yeah, many people uh, ask me this. When uh, people call this stuff garbage or, oh, this stuff are just rubbish and garbage, and instantly we have to get rid of them. I'm talking to Maryam Esvenbod about the other side of her research, which is using organic waste, things like dead veggies, dead leaves, food scraps, old branches from the garden, even wood chippings, using these wasted organics as a way to remediate degraded land. This research project aims to collect all these wasted organics from residential properties, your house, my house, even up to an industrial and agricultural level. What it would do is turn them into a soil conditioner of sorts, a biosolid that could be mixed into desertified land to boost or rejuvenate microbial activity. Through this recycled organic, it has three major improvements chemical perspective, biological perspective, or physical. This wasted organic biosolid can be a good source for plant nutrients, enable more air and water to travel through the soil, increase the soil's water-holding capacity, and it would immobilise inorganic pollutants that have been chucked into landfill. It would eat those up and reduce the amount of carbon that's let out. How and where this biosolid would be dispersed, well, the nuts and bolts are still to be figured out. But Miriam says this research couldn't come at a more important time. Because if we keep disposing of wasted organics, or wasted gold, as she calls it, in the way we currently do, we won't only see more unnecessary crap going to landfill, but we'll potentially lose out on a massive amount of money. At the moment... 44% of all these wasted organics are recycled, and 9% that recycling for producing electricity. But unfortunately, 47% exactly go directly to the landfill. And if we can be successful in recycling of these 47%, then it can create an industry worth more than $1 billion in recycling organics. However, if we cannot and we don't recycle these wasted organics and send them directly to the landfill... They will instead contribute to greenhouse gas emissions producing gases like methane, which produce less emissions across the board compared to CO2, but are 30 times more potent. Utilising these biosolids is not only environmentally strategic, but too economical, because at this point, land degradation is costing Australia $2.5 billion each year in terms of production losses for Australian farmers. Urging governments to face the music and implement research and evidence-based solutions to desertification is an issue Dunlady says Nigeria is facing as well. But when it comes to Lake Chad... He's concerned because there are no guidelines as to what is good and what is bad irrigation practice. In the lake, there is the weak enforcement and unorganised institution. This abstraction for irrigation are unsustainable. There's no regulation. They're unregulated. They're unregulated. And what damage does that do? It really does a great damage. And over time, you see within a one-year period, people just do this abstract water in excess to irrigate this land 
there is no government regulation there is no government agency around to monitor how what level of water needs to be abstract in this season what level of water it's the limit for irrigation to ensure a water balance all these are not really in place although there are no written or enforced guidelines around sustainable irrigation practice for the region Danladi says the Nigerian and Chad governments are recognizing there is a problem. The Interbasin Water Transfer Project is one such solution that has been posed, which would divert water from the Congo Basin into Lake Chad. However, this would involve building a 2,400-kilometer canal to channel that water through, costing around $15 billion U.S., also, in May this year, it came out that the Nigerian government was reviewing studies on the water transfer project and was also seeking alternatives, where the Minister for Water Resources, Mr. Suleiman Adamu, told the news agency of Nigeria that he didn't think the Nigerian economy was capable of supporting the project. For Danladi, the transfer project alone isn't the answer to the problem. It's one option that goes alongside adopting more sustainable irrigation and water conservation practices, like using rainwater tanks, which are completely not used in any of these areas. If there are tanks, the rainwater could be harvested to support for water consumption. It could also support irrigation. When you have your massive tank set and you have your proper channel from rooftop, and you collect good water. What we're trying to do here is to see how we less the demand on the water in the lake. The other option, how can we come up with low-cost equipments that will ensure that irrigation uses lesser water? Are you optimistic about the future of Lake Chad? Yeah... I've, I'm optimistic about the future of the Lake Church. And why is that? During the last uh, climate accord in Paris, leaders from that region, particularly the president from Nigeria, that was one of the issues they really brought on the table, that climate change is really having a significant impact on the lake. People in that particular axis are suffering for survival. And also they approached the African Development Bank, to see how they could rally support from other development agencies, I think we will be on the way of achieving the water transfer projects in the long term. Do you think that's a good thing, though? Because you were talking about how this is very expensive and it, it, if that is feasible one and the money will go towards that, but that's not necessarily your end goal that you were talking about. In the long term, rejuvenating the lake is quite a very, very good option we need to do. We need to bring on board. That is why I'm supporting that option in the long term. Mm -hmm. Though it's very expensive, aside other measures we put in place for adaptation at the moment, how do we build people's capacity to adapt to the current situation? But in the long time, we need to rejuvenate the lake and then have proper measures in place so we don't have the case of what will happen now reoccurring in the future.
You've been listening to Think Sustainability. If you like what you heard today, make sure to visit our website for more information to ser.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us. We are available as a podcast. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Sustainability. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us get discovered. This show is made possible by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.